0: Hi again, and welcome to the Physiology by Physio podcast, the newest show from your friends at Inside the Boards. With this show, we're focusing on providing your ears high yield physiology and pathophysiology content to help you rock the USMLE or Comlex. We can do this because of an awesome partnership between three fantastic platforms in the scene of medical education Physio, Med School Phys, and Inside the Boards. This episode will focus on a few important topics in pulmonary anatomy and physiology, so without any further ado, let's get started with the show. And we'll start off the content of this episode with kind of a more global teleological question. So, what's the ultimate purpose of the lungs in our pulmonary system? Well, the lungs serve as an exchange center to get oxygen in and carbon dioxide out, right? Uh, There are some other functions that take place in the lungs, like its role in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis. But really, we think about bringing O2 into the bloodstream and getting CO2 out of the bloodstream. Okay, and what is the ultimate destination of the vast majority of the O2 that we bring into the bloodstream? Well, it gets plugged into the last step of the electron transport chain for aerobic metabolism. And what's the ultimate destination of the CO2 exchanged in the lungs? Well, it gets exhaled into the environment, and that can be used by other organisms like plants. So those are some of the big and broad strokes. Now let's start thinking about some of the details of the lungs themselves, starting with basic anatomy. So air enters the nose and mouth, right? Then what's happening to the air that enters the nose and mouth? Well, in the nose, we have these nose hairs and we have the turbinates, which create a very turbulent environment for the air coming in. And why would this be useful for us? Well, lining the inner surface of the nose, we have a mucus layer, and particulates and contaminants that are in the air are bouncing around in this turbulent environment, and it'll slam into this mucus layer and get trapped. So this is one of the first steps of purifying air that we breathe, have large particulates. Uh, Additionally, as air moves through the nose and the mouth in these turbulent bulk flows, uh, it's humidified and warmed and the humidification occurs via evaporation of water molecules on the epithelial surface. So why would we want to warm and humidify the air that travels through the upper airways? Well, if you don't humidify the air coming in, then you'll end up drying out the airways, and this will negatively impact the function of the mucociliary system and we want to warm the air to body temperature because cold and dry airs can easily induce bronchospasm. You may have experienced this if you've ever tried exercising out on a cold and dry day. Anyways, so I mentioned this mucociliary system. So w- what is that? Well, the airways from the paranasal sinuses all the way down to the smallest parts of the conducting zones are lined by goblet cells that produce mucus, and they're also lined by pseudostratified ciliated columnar cells. So the mucus creates a protective layer on the airways that traps dust and particulates, like we said, and this protective function of the mucus layer is also supported by immune factors like lysozyme and IgA. Underneath of the mucus layer, we have cilia that are on the pseudostratified columnar cells, and these cilia are constantly beating together in a coordinated fashion to move the mucus layer with all of its trapped particulates towards the back of the pharynx, kind of like an escalator. And why would this be helpful? Well, eventually, we swallow the contents trapped in the mucus layer, and then we send them down into the harsh environment of the stomach to be taken care of. So that's yummy to think about. Okay guys, here we'll have our first transition to physio content with one of their thought-provoking
1: practice questions. Let's do a few examples. What histological changes would occur in the conducting zone as a result of chronic bronchitis. Okay, before we get into the details of this question, why don't I take a step back and explain chronic bronchitis. Chronic bronchitis is exactly what it sounds like. There is ongoing irritation of the bronchi, which results in inflammation. This can be for many reasons, which I'm not going to get into, but the chronic inflammation causes the cells to adapt so they can better withstand the new environment. So generally speaking, chronic irritation to the pseudostratified ciliated columnar epithelium causes the epithelium to undergo metaplasia or to become a new cell type. In this case, stratified squamous epithelium. When this occurs, the mucociliator elevator's ability to remove debris is diminished because the new cell type doesn't have cilia. The goblet cell will undergo hypertrophy, which will result in increased mucus production. If you think about this, it makes sense. The goblet cells detect the inflammation and increase mucus in order to try and clear out the irritants.
0: Okay, hey guys, it's Greg again from Inside the Boards. And I'd like to give a quick plug for our sponsor this week, which is Physio. So a couple of years ago, Physio burst onto the scene of medical education with their physiology course, which proved that they kind of know what they're doing as medical educators. And since then, they've just continued to make improvements and produce more valuable content for their subscribers. Not only have they produced physiology content that they fashioned in kind of a similar manner to the Pathoma whiteboard style lectures. But they've also produced a course for biochem and biostats and even more, and they're currently working on a high-yield micro course for the boards, which they fashioned after the sketchy style. So I've got to say that I'm really impressed with the work that they're doing at Physio, and I love the idea of having Pathoma-style content, conceptual learning, integrated together with sketchy-style memorization tools, and it's all housed together in one sleek platform on Physio. Oh, and did I also mention that they also produced a textbook that they continually update and you get free with your subscription? So there's no need to furiously write down notes. It's already written down for you in a nice and neat manner, so you can just kind of go with the flow of the videos. Anyways, I'm really excited to be working with the guys from Physio on this collaborative podcast. Now, I want you to stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about a discount code for your physio subscription that we at Inside the Boards were able to secure for you, the listener. But for now, let's get back to the show. Now let's talk about some functional anatomy and physiology. So, what drives air into the lungs? Well, it's pressure differentials. Like with any fluid, air flows from high pressure to low pressure. So how do we manipulate our anatomy to produce a low pressure region that environmental air wants to move into? Well, to do this, we expand our intrathoracic volume, thus reducing the interior pressure and driving air inwards. So how do we achieve this? Here we come to the primary muscle of respiration, which is the... It's the diaphragm. So the diaphragm separates the thoracic cavity from the abdominal cavity, and when it contracts it flattens out, which increases intrathoracic volume and reduces intrathoracic pressure, which facilitates airflow from the high pressure external environment into our lower pressure thoracic cavity, i.e. towards the lungs. Then for exhalation, as the diaphragm relaxes passively, the opposite occurs. The relaxing diaphragm pouches upwards, thus decreasing intrathoracic volume and increasing intrathoracic pressure, forcing air to flow out of the lungs and into the surrounding environment because it's now at a higher pressure than the surrounding environment. Again, this is basic stuff, but do notice that inhalation requires active diaphragm contraction, while exhalation is a passive process. Alright guys, now I'll have the guys from Physio come in and help us out with a practice
1: question. Right here we have the heart and then below the lungs we have the diaphragm. And This is the primary muscle that facilitates respiration. Do you remember what nerve innervates the diaphragm? The phrenic nerve. Many students use the mnemonic C345 keep the diaphragm alive because the roots of the phrenic nerve are... C3 through C5. Okay, let's do a quick example. An x-ray reveals an elevation of the left hemidiaphragm. Is the left or right phrenic nerve damaged? Recall that the diaphragm has a right portion called the right hemidiaphragm. It also has a left portion called the left hemidiaphragm. So as we just learned, the phrenic nerve innervates the diaphragm. Remember, when the diaphragm contracts, it's pulled downward and allows the space in the thoracic cavity to increase. If the phrenic nerve is damaged, then the diaphragm cannot move downward, so we'd expect the damaged side to be elevated. In this case, the left hemidiaphragm is elevated, so we know that the left phrenic nerve must be affected.
0: All right, and now we'll round out the episode with some additional points about things that can go wrong with the mucociliary elevator and the cells lining the respiratory epithelium. Okay, now let's take a tangent here to talk about a couple of boards relevant topics related to the mucociliary elevator. First up, if I describe a little white child who gets recurrent respiratory infections, has chronic diarrhea, and has salty sweat, what disease should you be thinking about? Well, it's cystic fibrosis. So, cystic fibrosis is a pretty rough disease that negatively impacts the function of the mucociliary elevator. It occurs in 1 in 4,000 live births, and the most common form is an autosomal recessive mutation to the phenylalanine 508 of the CFTR gene on chromosome 7p, referred to as the delta-F508 variant. So, what does the CFTR gene do? Well, it's a chloride channel that's mostly present on epithelial surfaces. And how does a defective CFTR gene negatively impact the mucociliary elevator? Well, in the respiratory epithelium, these patients have trouble moving chloride into the mucus. And the consequence of this is that the chloride and sodium and water now stay inside of the body, and they don't get into the mucus. So this will dehydrate and thicken the mucus in the airway. So why is ultra-thick mucus problematic for these patients? Well, if the mucus is too thick, the underlying cilia can't effectively beat the mucus towards the back of the throat, which then predisposes to mucus plugging of the airways, and if the mucus remains relatively static in the airways for a long time, that's a perfect setup for bacterial infections. And speaking of bacterial infections, which three bugs most commonly establish respiratory infections in cystic fibrosis patients? Well, it's staph aureus, especially early on, haemophilus influenza, and pseudomonas aeruginosa. And it's also important to know that for cystic fibrosis patients, recurrent infections and chronic inflammation ultimately leads to permanent damage and dilation of the airways, and we refer to this as bronchiectasis. So, cystic fibrosis is frequently compared to another disease called primary ciliary dyskinesia. So, why is that the case? Well, because both will negatively impact the function of the mucociliary elevator. But, primary ciliary dyskinesia does so in a different way. Primary ciliary dyskinesia is also an autosomal recessive disease, but this one is a disease of the dynean arm of the cilia. In this case, it's the cilia themselves that are defective in contrast to cystic fibrosis where the mucous layer is just too thick for the mucociliary elevator to work effectively. Primary ciliary dyskinesia can also be part of a syndrome known as Cartagener syndrome. And in Cartagener syndrome, these patients classically develop a triad. Do you know what that is? Well, they get recurrent respiratory infections. Situs inversus, uh, so like their heart can be on the right side of their body, and infertility. And all of this stems from defective ciliary function. And one last thing related to this section, probably the most common cause of problems in the airway itself is actually due to smoking. Chronic smoke inhalation damages the airways, and the epithelium's response to this damage is to produce a hardier type of tissue. In this case, it's a metaplastic transition from the normal pseudostratified columnar epithelium to squamous epithelium, which is much more tolerant to inhaled irritants. But when we move to squamous epithelium, we lose out on the function of the mucociliary elevator. So smokers are more prone to respiratory infections. Additionally, if this squamous metaplasia gets out of control, then we can develop dysplasia and eventually squamous cell carcinoma. Okay, now let's transition here. So at this point, we've warmed and we've humidified the air moving into our nose and mouth, and now we know that we have this mucociliary elevator constantly running in the background. So where does the air go to next? Well, let's quickly run through the anatomy. The inhaled air passes from the pharynx and into the larynx, past the vocal cords, and then it moves down into the trachea with its beautiful cartilaginous rings. Next, the air will move down the trachea until it divides at the carina into the right and the left main bronchi, which will then further branch outward, forming a bronchial tree, into the three lobes of the right lung and the two lobes of the left lung. Eventually, as air moves through the bronchial tree, the inhaled gas will reach the bronchioles and finally the alveoli, those little grape cluster-looking things where true gas exchange actually takes place. Okay, so here's the classic pimp question about the bronchial tree. When you're seated upright and you're eating a meal, and all of a sudden you start choking and you realize that you've aspirated, now some of the food that you were eating is in your airway. So where is that foreign body more likely to lodge? In the right bronchus or the left bronchus? Well, it's more likely to lodge in the right bronchus, specifically the inferior segment of the right lower lobe, because it's got a wider and straighter path than the left mainstem bronchus, which breaks off from the carina at a sharper angle. But what if you aspirated the food while supine, This is more of a boards anatomy question, but when you're supine, the foreign body is still more likely to move down the right bronchus, but this time it'll lodge in the superior segment of the right lower lobe. So superior when supine, and the inferior segment when upright. Okay, hopefully that wasn't too foreign for you guys. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited-time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. Okay guys, so I know this one was short and sweet. Uh, With all that being said, I hope the explanations made sense. I hope you learned something and I'll see you all next time.